with our missionaries, sharing some time with them, getting to know them more, hearing about what God is doing around the world. So join us. That's March 13th, two weeks from now. We will not be here. We'll be at our Shakopee campus, so join us over there. Also, with Mission Sunday coming, we're going to be taking a turn in our sermon series. And so we'll be completing this sermon series that we're currently in about Abraham, which means over the course of the school year, between our sermon series called Creation and the Cross and this one called When Life Says Jump, we'll have covered the first half of the book of Genesis. But we're not coming back to cover the second half in a sermon series. So some of you may be saying, well, how do, how do I catch the second half? A, it's in your Bibles. <laughs> B, uh, we have prepared a life group study on the lives of Isaac and Jacob. So this covers Genesis 24 through 35. And if you and your life group want to go through this and spend some time looking at the lives of Isaac and then Jacob, Abraham's offspring, you certainly can do this. And the idea is that by the time your life group would be done with this, hopefully we'll have produced a study on the life of Joseph that will complete the book of Genesis. So uh, you can pick that up if you're like, boy, I, I'd love to do that with my life group, but maybe I'd like to do it with my family. I've got older kids and I'd love to go through that with them. Uh, by all means, contact me and we'll make sure to get that to you. Our current sermon series... It's called When Life Says Jump. And what are we looking at in this sermon series? We are looking at the lives of a couple named Abraham and Sarah. People that the New Testament refers to as people of faith. As a matter of fact, every time that Abraham's name is mentioned in the New Testament, it is connected with faith. These are people of great faith. And so what we've been learning in this series, When God Says Jump, we've been learning from those times when they act out of a deep faith in God. And we've also been learning from those times in their lives when their faith fails and falters altogether. There are lessons that we can learn from both of those things. And as we've been looking at Abraham and Sarah, we see they are people of deep and abiding faith in God. Some of those days they live it out, and some of those days they struggle and fail in faith. And as I read these chapters, I'm reminded of that guy that comes to Jesus in Mark chapter 9. And he says to Jesus, I believe, what does he say next? Help my unbelief. Right? I believe, help my unbelief. And isn't that what we're seeing from Abraham and Sarah? Are they people of belief? Yes. People of deep faith in God? Yes. But are there chapters where they're not living it out fully? Yep. Does that resonate with anyone in here? Right? We believe, Lord. We have faith in you. But some days I'm not living it out real well. I believe, but help my unbelief. As we look at this account of Abraham and Sarah, we see them as people of faith who have ups and downs in their daily walk of faith. But friends, what about people who reject faith in God altogether? What about people who reject God reject his ways, and instead live in sin and selfishness. What happens with them? Well, that is the subject of the chapter that we come to this week as we're looking at Abraham's life. Genesis chapter 19, where we see these twin cities that are filled 
with sin and selfishness. They have rejected God and rejected his way. And our question is, what, what is God going to do with them? And so look with me at Genesis 19 and let's see what it is that God does with them. Beginning in verse 1, we read, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, wait a minute. We pick this up right in the middle of an account. Who are the two angels, right? Who are the two angels here? These are two of the three men that met with Abraham last week. So if you remember Genesis 18 from last week, Abraham has a conversation with three men. One of those men is identified as Yahweh, Lord, all capital letters. This is what is called a theophany, which is a fancy word for those times in the Old Testament when God himself takes on a human form in order to interact with a person or people. But God isn't the only one who took on human form. Two angels accompany him. They also take on human form. And at the end of Genesis 18, we're told that God leaves the scene and these two angels continue on. And now they have appeared here in Sodom. We read, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. I think throughout this account, in the verses that we're looking at, God is continuing to give Sodom and Gomorrah one final opportunity, one final test through these angels. He said, if, if there are ten righteous people in the city, I will not destroy these cities. And so let's look and see if there are any righteous people who will respond. Is there any righteousness in the city? Because if there's any righteousness in the city, maybe they should just stay in the town square. They'll be safe there. It'll all be good. Lot knows way better than that. Right? He lives in these cities, and he says, you can't stay in the town square. As a matter of fact, you're going to come to my house, and when are you going to leave? Early in the morning. you got to get up and get out of here before anybody knows you're here. Right? How many righteous people are there in Sodom? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. They are not asking to be able to have an encounter with these men so that they can get to know them relationally. They are asking to bring these men out so that they can violate them. And how many of the men of the town, how many of the people of the town are involved in this? Right? All of them. There are times within the Scripture where the word all is used in a hyperbolic sense to say a whole lot of people. But the author here wants you to understand he is not speaking hyperbolically. This is not exaggerated language. He says, no, 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 all the people, young and old, to the very last man, every single one of them are there acting in this unrighteousness. Well, maybe Lot, maybe Lot's the only righteous person in the town. Right? What does it say then? Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. 
How many of you are ready to vote for Lot as the hero of the story? <laughs> there are some people who try to justify Lot's actions here by saying this was common practice in this society at this time. Right? So, so was burning your children to the gods. Like, what, what does common practice of these pagan lands have to do with anything? The man offers his two virgin daughters to an entire town full of men and says, do with them as you please. This is awful. And what we see here is, it's not just the people of Sodom who are unrighteous. Who else is unrighteous? Right? We're going to see throughout Lot and his family, they are unrighteous as well. But they said, stand back. These are the people of the town speaking now. Stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he, became, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. They are insulted by Lot's offer. Not because of the horror of a man offering his daughters to a town. They are insulted because they want the men. They're so mad here. They're going to take it out on Lot. But the men reached out their hand. Now, when it says the men here, this is referring to the angelic men. right? The men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Did you catch that last part? The angels strike them blind. And in their instant blindness, what do they do? In their lust and their violence, they continue to grope for the door to carry out their plan. Ah! Right? This is, this is terrible. Then the men, these angelic men, said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out to the place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. There is a tremendous outcry that has reached God's ears about this. That is a term that is used in the Old Testament to communicate when a victim is crying out to God against their victimizer. It's, it's always used in that way. So that we see in Genesis chapter 4, your brother's blood, Abel's blood, outcries to me. Same word, outcries to me from the ground. Cain, Abel's blood is crying out to me against you. The victim's blood against the victimizer. Or in Exodus chapter 3, I have heard there, Israel's outcry because of their taskmasters, Egypt. Every time this word is used, it's used about the victim crying out against their victimizer to God. And God says, the victims are crying out to me about Sodom and Gomorrah. The book of Ezekiel tells us about those victims. It says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. What was the guilt of Sodom? She and her daughters had pride. Excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. The sexual depravity and violence are on display in this chapter, but Ezekiel wants us to understand that the great sin of Sodom 
was the fact that they were living in plenty within the city walls. And there were all kinds of poor people in need who were outside the city, and they refused to help them as they continued to live in their opulence. And the cries of those people, of those victims of Sodom and Gomorrah, those who they refused to help, have reached the ears of God. And so God has come to do something about it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Lot goes to the boys who are about to marry his daughters, and he says, guys, we got to get out of here. This entire city is going to get lit up. And they go, good one, pops. Right? Like, clearly you're joking here. And so they do what? Nothing. They do nothing based on this warning. And honestly, Lot and his wife and his daughters aren't much better. Look at these verses. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord, oh my goodness, catch this. The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Lot and his family, are they in a hurry to get out despite what has been proclaimed? No, not at all. They're lingering. And so what happens? These two angels actually have to grab them by the hands and lead them out of the city because of God's great mercy. They are saved despite themselves. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Was I saved because of how great I am? Was I saved because of my good works? No, I, I was saved despite myself because of the amazing mercy of God who has dragged me out of the city of sin and brought me in to his family. Verses 20, uh, 17 to 22 uh, we're going to skip over for the sake of time. Lot and the angels enter into an argument. They're headed out of Sodom, and the angels say, hey, go up and live in the hills. And Lot says, no, thank you. We want a town. Give us the town of Zor. And the angels go, all right, fine, but you got to get there quick because judgment's coming. And then in verse 23, judgment comes. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. When the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Lot's wife looked back. Right? There is this judgment of God that is falling upon sin. And we're told that Lot's wife was behind him, Right? For some reason, she is lingering back closer to the city, and then she looks back. This isn't just that she happened to look over her shoulder to see what was going on. It isn't like the judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah somehow had some sort of Medusa-like qualities, and if you looked at it, you turned into a pillar of salt. Right? That's not what is happening here. The Hebrew words that are translated here, looks back, means to to long for or to consider deeply. And so she is already lingering behind. Why? And then she turns heart and mind back to the city. And when she does, 
she is enveloped in the judgment and destruction that God sent upon sin. Abraham goes to this spot, we think. Beni Naim. And we're told in verses 27 and 28 that he looked out from this high place, this place where he had had a conversation with the Lord in the previous chapter. They had looked down at the plain and had seen Sodom and Gomorrah. And now he looks down from this high point and he sees Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does he see? Destruction. And does Abraham turn into a pillar of salt? Right? No, because this isn't some sort of magical thing where you see the smoke and you turn into a pillar of salt. Right? She longed, and so she received judgment. Abraham sees the pillar of smoke, and he sees the judgment of God. And we get this summary verse about all that has happened here. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Is Lot saved from judgment here because he's righteous? Everything we see from Lot, whether we're talking about Genesis 13 or this situation, is Lot acting in a way that is unrighteous, in a way that is sinful, in a way that is selfish. So why was Lot saved in this situation? What what does this passage say? It's because of who he was related to. It's because of who he was related to that he was saved in this situation. Again, does that sound familiar at all? Am I saved because of my own righteousness? Or am I saved because of what Jesus has chosen to do to bring me into relationship with him, into his family, and I'm now saved through that family relationship. He's not saved because he's righteous. Nowhere is Lot righteous in this. As a matter of fact, if there's any questions about whether or not Lot and his family are righteous, those seem to be answered very clearly in the final verses of this chapter. Verses 30 through 38, which I can sum up by saying, Lot gets drunk on more than one occasion, sleeps with his own daughters, and produces children by them. And we are told that those boys grow up to be the forefathers of the Ammonites and the Moabites, which if you follow a little bit of the history of Israel for the next few hundred years... Is there, are there greater thorns in the side of Israel when it comes to the promised land than the Moabites and the Ammonites? These are, are cues to us that this is, this is wickedness that we're experiencing here. The Ammonites and the Moabites. God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah is meant for us to be a foretaste or a foreshadowing of God's ultimate judgment on sin on the day of judgment. They're a picture for us, a foreshadowing of that ultimate day when God on the day of judgment will judge sin. And we don't like to talk about judgment. It's not a pleasant subject, but there are some important things for us to understand about the judgment of God that we see in this passage, starting with the fact that God's judgments are thorough and right. God's judgments are thorough and right. Last week, when you were walking through the passage, did you see this peculiar verse where God, in in human form, says to Abraham, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. 
And when you read this verse last week, what was your response? What? (laughs) Why does God need to go down and check it out for himself? Doesn't God already know what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Wasn't that your reaction? What? What? Yes, God already knows what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. As a matter of fact, in the verse immediately before this, he calls them wicked or evil cities. Just a few verses before this, he, he calls out Sarah for laughing when she doesn't laugh out loud. Throughout the entire passage is about Abraham. God knows everything that's going on in Abraham's life, whether he be in Egypt or Ur of the Chaldees or in Canaan. He always knows what is going on. Does God know what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, does he actually go to Sodom and Gomorrah? No, at the end of Genesis 18, he disappears from the scene because he doesn't need to go. He knows what is going on. And so what is he communicating when he says this to Abraham? He is communicating to Abraham that I always do my research. My judgments are always thorough. They are always based on all of the facts. I look at everything deeply. There is never a situation in which God's judgments are based on less than all of the information. There's never a situation where God's judgments are based on him happening to be in a certain mood that day. God's judgments are always thorough and always right, each and every time. Is that true of us? As people, right? Are our judgments always thorough and right? Right? Anyone else think yours are always thorough and right, right? Isn't that the human condition? I'm sure that you guys are all messed up in your judgments, but mine are always thorough and right, right? That, That is the human condition. But our judgments as people are not thorough and they're not right so much of the time. When I was in the sixth grade, I had to ride the school bus to school each and every day. And one day when I was riding on the school bus, the kids seated immediately in front of me was a fellow sixth grader who was kind of a bully in the school. And as we were riding along, I happened to have my hand up on the seat in front of me. This sixth grader that was seated in front of me didn't want my hand there. But but he didn't ask, would you please move your hand or even tell me, get your hand off my seat. Instead, he turned around and he started to headbutt my hand over and over again. Right, Just one time after another, he's headbutting my hand. You could get away with these kinds of things on my bus because my bus driver was old And he was hard of hearing, and his vision was a little impaired. Super, super safe environment. Yes, that's how we rolled back in the day. And as he kept headbutting my hand over and over again, I didn't move it because back in the day, I used to be a little stubborn. Back in the day, right? And at one point, I got tired of him headbutting my hand. And so as his head went back, I decided, as his head began to come forward again, to just move my hand six inches forward like this, as a fist. And he rammed his face right into my fist. At least that's how I would put it. And wouldn't you know it, this bully was a bleeder. I mean, no sooner had my fist connected with his nose than there's blood that started all down his face. And the moment I saw the blood, I knew... I'm in a lot of trouble. (laughs) 
And sure enough, moments later, we arrived at the school. He went up and told the bus driver everything that had happened. The bus driver gave him a roll of paper towels so that he could clean himself up so that nobody would see him like that. And he headed off while I was asked to sit there until everyone was off the bus. And when everyone was off the bus, this bus driver came over and he gave it to me. He was yelling at me about my conduct and my behavior and how I was going to have detention and maybe suspension. And he said, what is your name? I'm going to report it to the office. And I told him, my name is Matt Clausen. And I went in and sat in my homeroom with my heart right here, waiting to hear the, the voice of the principal come on over the speakers to call me down to the office, waiting and wondering what those conversations with my parents were going to be like. And as I sat there, I finally heard the crackle of the speakers come on. And the principal's voice came on over the speakers sternly and said, Will Mark Carlson please come to the office? Mark Carlson, please report to the office. <laughs> over the course of the day, as I began to put the pieces together, <laughs> I realized that my hearing-impaired bus driver... I had heard Mark Carlson when I said Matt Clausen. And, and I actually think there was a Mark Carlson in the fourth grade who probably was totally shocked at why he was getting accused of punching a sixth grader in the face on the bus. And I never got in trouble for any of that. Why? Right? How did the school screw justice up that badly? The answer is because as people... We don't have all of the information. And often the information that we do have is wrong, or the information that we do have, we don't understand it correctly. And so our judgments are not thorough, and they are not right in the same way that God's are. But God's judgments are always thorough, and they are always right. Look at these verses that talk about how God has every bit of the information as he makes judgments. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. God not only knows all of my actions, he knows my thoughts, everyone. Uh, I tell you, Jesus says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Uh, just the really important speeches that I make? No, no, every single word. Proverbs 5.21, for a man's ways are in what? Full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. 1 Corinthians 4.5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. 1 Corinthians 4.5 says, okay, you, you guys can see the outward actions and you can hear the words, but in order for judgment to be thorough and right each and every time, you have to be able to hear the thoughts and recognize the motivations behind everything that happens. It says only the Lord has that ability to know every person's motivation within everything they do. God's judgments are thrown right. He has all the information, and he always uses that information rightly. Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God's judgments are thorough and right. 
And as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah shows us, God will judge sin and wrongdoing. Right? God will judge sin and wrongdoing. But right now, there's a delay in that judgment. Right? I, I told you Sodom and Gomorrah, they're a foreshadowing of a judgment on the judgment day that is to come. There is a delay in God's judging sin and wrongdoing. Why does that delay exist? What do we deserve? Right? We deserve the first time we sin in life to instantly die and be judged before God and separated from Him because of that sin. And yet, God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He allows us to continue on through life. For what purpose? Uh, 2 Peter, that should say 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. Throughout 2 Peter chapter 3, the whole chapter is about the judgment of God that's going to be brought upon sin. That's the promise. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise towards judgment on sin, as some count slowness, but he's patient. He's long-suffering toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't judge us instantly as we deserve. Instead, he's patient or long-suffering. For what purpose? So that we might turn away from our sin and turn to Him. God will judge sin, but right now, there's a delay. There, there's a huge problem, and that is only the righteous will escape judgment. It's, it's only the righteous who will escape judgment. Did you notice in last week's chapter, as Abraham is going back and forth with God, kind of bargaining for Sodom and Gomorrah, that Abraham made a correct assumption that it's only the righteous that deserve to escape God's judgment. Abraham never argues, God, you shouldn't destroy the wicked. No, he, he knows that should be their fate. Abraham's argument is what? W would you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? And God says, no, no, I wouldn't. Absolutely not. Of course, there doesn't turn out to be any righteous people there. But, but it's, it's only the righteous who will escape judgment. And Abraham understands that. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? No, only the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous, they'll receive what? God's judgment towards sin. And our big problem is, no one is righteous. As you look at this passage, who's righteous? Right? Sodom righteous? <clears throat> Gomorrah righteous? <clears throat> right? Is Lot righteous? No, we don't see Lot and his family act in righteousness throughout this. No one is righteous. Ecclesiastes 7, surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Psalm 14.3, they have all turned aside together that they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, sometimes we may be tempted to see ourselves as good or righteous, because we're making some false comparisons that God doesn't call us to make. Uh, we put all of people on a continuum. And we measure ourselves against other people as if God's grading us on a curve compared to all other people on that continuum. Usually on one end of the continuum is the most wicked person that we can think of, right? Who usually goes on one end of the continuum? Hitler. Doesn't Hitler always go on one end of the continuum? Now it's harder to fill out the other end of the continuum. Right? And so some people might put Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or Grandpa, whoever, right? They think of as the best person that they've known goes on the other end of the continuum. 
And so as people are measuring against all of these people who have ever lived, they go, well, where do I fall as I grade, right, on this curve? Well, uh, because our, our hearts are a little bit deceptive, we, we tend to see ourselves as a, maybe a little better than we should. And we watch the news. I mean, it's not like I'm Putin, right? Uh, it's not like I'm that celebrity that just got married for the sixth time. Uh, and so if I'm comparing myself against what I see on the news and what I see in celebrity culture, I'm certainly not that bad. And so I must be over here. I mean, let's not get carried away. I'm not way over here. But I'm certainly on, you know, the good side in some sense. Right? And so we tend to think of ourselves as good or righteous because we are doing this inappropriate comparing to other people. Right? Does God ever call us to do that kind of comparing? Right? Does God ever say, you guys, I'm grading on a curve, and as long as you're better than most, you're doing well. No, absolutely not. God's standard when he's doing the judging is what? The character of God, isn't it? He says, I've made you to be in my image, to reflect me. And so you are to reflect my character. He says in 1 Peter 1, you're to be holy as I am holy. He says in John 13, you're to love as I love. He says in 1, Peter, or I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 3, you are to be pure as I am pure. God is always the standard. And so the continuum should actually look a little more like this. Where Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only what? Only God is good. He's the only one who is righteous. He's the only one who is good. And everyone else goes on the bad or unrighteous side. And as a matter of fact, because God is the standard by which we judge, and because every person falls infinitely short of that standard, the measured distance between Billy Graham and Hitler is negligible when you compare it to the infinite goodness of God. That's really hard for us to deal with. right? But, but both fall infinitely short of God's goodness when it comes to this continuum. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is wicked. There is no one who is righteous in all of this. But here's the good news, you guys. You can be counted as righteous. You can be credited by God as righteous. How? Because you've done so many good things? No, Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. According to his own mercy. Do you remember that word mercy and where it came up in the story of Lot as those angels dragged his family out of the city, saving them, uh, really uh, against, their own, uh, against all of their own actions. Right? They're, they're saved despite themselves. And in that sense, that, in a sense, that is what has happened with us. Right? We have been saved despite ourselves. It's not because of the goodness of my life, the natural righteousness of my heart that I'm saved. No, I, I am saved through Jesus despite myself as Lot was. Like Lot, I am saved because of the family relationship that has been established. I'm not saved because of my goodness or my righteousness. I'm saved because of who I'm related to. Lot was saved because God considered Abraham, it says. And in that same sense, I am saved. Why? Because there is a newer, greater Abraham who has started his own chosen people. And through the work of this greater Abraham who has started his own chosen people, this new chosen people, 
I am saved and I am declared righteous because of what he has done. Not because of any works of my own, but because of his great mercy and that he has brought me into relationship with him. You can be counted as righteous. In the New Testament, Lot is referred to as righteous. Despite all that we just saw, Lot is referred to as righteous. Why? Because his actions are seen as righteous in the book of Genesis? No, we see nothing but unrighteousness from him. But he is credited as righteous because of the mercy of God. Because of the mercies of God. You can be counted as righteous because God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him you might become the very righteousness of God. So that now in my life, over everything wrong, there is this giant stamp that says, paid by Jesus. And in every right thing that has happened, it is the righteousness of Jesus that's credited to me. Who can have this? Right? Who can be counted as righteous? Romans 8.1 says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can be counted as righteous? Those who are in Christ Jesus. They're the ones who no longer have judgment or condemnation on their life. They're the ones who instead have that family relationship with God and experience the goodness and blessings of God, not condemnation. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that you? Are you in Christ Jesus? Uh, I would say that if there's any questions that you have about what that means to be in Christ Jesus, uh, write down that you want to talk to somebody about it on that Connect card that you're about to turn in. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to be in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are in Christ Jesus, we're about to celebrate that fact and the fact that there is no more condemnation for us, there is no more judgment for us, that we've been set free from our sins, and we do that every week at this table where we recognize the mercy of God who has grabbed us by the hand and has led us out of the city of sin and has brought us to safety and salvation in him. And I'd love for you to be thinking about that as you go to the table. Take the bread and take the cup that represent Jesus' sacrifice for us. Uh, we're going to sing God's praises here in a moment. And as we do, I'd encourage you to go to the table. And you can get the bread and the cup and return to your seats in just a minute. I'll lead us in the taking of the bread and the cup. <laughs>